0: Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and
1: bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. I am your host, Emmanuel Roche. Thank you very much for listening today. Every other week, I interview chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders to discover their secrets behind the scenes, I want to know what compelled them to become a chef or a bartender. I want to learn everything about their creative process and discover the unknown ingredients that are finding their way in their drinks and dishes. Before I introduce today's guests, I would like to thank everyone who has already taken the online survey to give me feedback about my podcast, Flavors Unknown. I will step-by-step integrate your recommendation. In fact, if you already go to the website, you see that I have made some modifications based on your comments. And I am looking for potential guests related to the topic that you have suggested. I welcome everyone's input. So if you haven't done it yet, please take the survey. I promise it will take you only five minutes. It is anonymous and you can find the link At flavorsunknown.com, you have to click on the contact page, then scroll down, and then you will reach the section called the podcast survey. Thank you in advance for your feedback. It really matters a lot to me. I am really pleased to have another pastry chef on Flavors Unknown. It is a woman this time, and her name is Emily Sperling. She's a pastry chef at the restaurant Bad Hunter in Chicago. She's a pastry chef, but she started as a line cook. And she fell in love with pastry while attending a French culinary school in Paris. Now, at Bad Hunter, she is integrating vegetables in her desserts and she's experimenting with fermentation. Please listen until the end of the podcast because Emily is going to share with us a series of desserts that you can do at home when you are having a party or entertaining guests. And I believe that I forgot to mention that today is episode number 15. Hey, hi, chefs. I'm uh, really happy and pleased to have you on Flavors Unknown today. How are you?
0: I'm so great. How are you?
1: I'm pretty good. Thank you. We had a very uh, exciting experience at your place. I had the pleasure to uh, try uh, some of uh, your desserts. I think it was about a year ago in In Chicago, in at uh, Bad Hunter, and uh, there were some fascinating uh, experience and uh, it stuck to my mind, and I'm very pleased to have you.
0: Great, thanks so much. I'm so happy to be here.
1: You are a pastry chef at uh, Bad Hunter in Chicago, so can you talk to us a little bit about what is Bad Hunter in terms of a restaurant and as well, you know what's your program uh, in terms of uh, dessert and pastry at at that place?
0: We're a vegetable-focused restaurant in Chicago, so we focus a lot on um, seasonal, produce-driven cooking, supporting local farms, and sort of just like celebrating Midwest produce. We're not inherently vegan or vegetarian, but we have a big population who are, so we do tend to like try to strive to do vegan and vegetarian food that doesn't sacrifice any, you know, flavor or texture. And as far as my program specifically, we do lunch and dinner service, so I have plated desserts and scoops of ice cream. We do brunch, so I kind of have a focus on laminated pastries and other brunch pastries like that. And we also have a private dining space, so we do, you know, weddings and all sorts of events like that.
1: And is your program in terms of dessert and, and pastries connected to the philosophy of the restaurant, which is like a vegetable-centric?
0: Absolutely, yeah. And so i that's kind of how i had been cooking before this job. I have always... I started out as a line cook before switching to pastry, so... I became really comfortable cooking with vegetables and that was sort of my main palette, I guess. And then switching over, I kind of took that with me a little bit. So that was my style of cooking. And then this opportunity came up and it, it seemed like such a good fit because I really love using vegetables and other savory ingredients in my desserts. So there's definitely like a liaison between the, the pastry and the savory aspects there.
1: So I'm curious because, um, you know, other people that are listening as well, you know, you're talking about dessert and pastry, and then we talk vegetables. So <laughs> can you give us like maybe one or two examples of what you have on your menu or things that you are, you know, let's say, known for or maybe a signature dish?
0: I guess we had a really popular dessert when we first opened. It was a chocolate cremeau, and we did um, a porcini mushroom ice cream with that. I've done parsnip stuff. I've done a sunchoke cake. I've done a semi that was with um, peas and rhubarb in the spring that was a hit. And another popular one was a, a beet and goat cheese uh, mousse with berries and chocolate.
1: So mushroom and ice cream. Explain yeah. that to me a little bit.
0: <laughs> yeah. So it definitely is a little funky, but more off, more than that, it's just really rich and sort of like umami aspect, which I thought paired really well with the dairy. And we also had some frozen grapes. So the acid in the grapes kind of help, help cut through the, the richness of the chocolate and the mushroom and we did a bit of chocolate crumble, sort of like a cookie crumble that had prosciutto powder in it. So, it was sort of rich and savory. And that
1: that's interesting because I had uh, recently uh, an episode with uh, Sam Mason from Art Fellows, you know, in in Brooklyn, and he was talking. In fact, I had the chance to do one face to face with him. The whole uh, shop was smelling, you know, they had the aroma of mushroom, and I and I said, "What are you doing with mushroom and ice cream?" And he, he thought that it was something very interesting as well because he can really absorb like the the sweetness, the sugar, you know, and and some of uh, other aroma. And um, so it's interesting that you know that both of you talking about ice cream and uh, playing with uh, you know mushroom as an ingredient. So
0: yeah,
1: that's yeah. Funny. So you you are saying that you are celebrating local yeah. produce, in the Midwest, and the seasonality. So. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that, and give us some example of seasonal product from uh, you know from the Midwest?
0: I think Chicago is known for having really brutal winters, which absolutely is true. But the summers here are just glorious, and I think that's why so many people stay here. Is you know, it's almost like you forget about the winter when summer comes around. We're super lucky to have a bunch of really amazing local farmers who are just growing amazing produce. So we have really beautiful berries and stone fruits and I mean, all sorts of vegetables. And then, you know, we just kind of have to do our best to preserve that in the summer in order to use it through the winter, as far as jams and pickles and fermenting. And then in the winter, we, you know, they are long. And so we we have squashes and root vegetables and some orchard fruits, and just find creative and new ways to use those. So I always like to say that, you know, we don't have the same sort of year long, amazing produce that people on the West Coast might have. But I, I truly believe that our joy at like the first strawberries or rhubarb or green vegetables in the spring is absolutely unrivaled. I don't think that anyone gets as excited about that as we do in the spring.
1: I do remember doing the uh, the tour in Chicago, and I think it was in, in June, and there was a a lot of rhubarb, uh, you know, on the menus, you know, around the the city. So that was pretty fascinating.
0: Yeah. And I remember last year, we had a really long spring. It was really cold and rainy. So we kind of got stuck with rhubarb for a lot longer than we usually do before the strawberries started coming up.
1: So you're talking about uh, preserving, uh, obviously, those great products from the spring and the summer. You use the term fermentation and we have seen fermentation Let's say very used in the culinary space. It's very trendy at the moment. So you're exploring fermentation in space three as well. From what you are saying, all in desserts, can you give us some example of fermentation and I'm guessing pickling and and other forms? You know, for for your desserts.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Pickles for sure. We do a lot of pickles that might be slightly on their sweeter side, or paired with a super rich dish, so that they can cut through that a little bit. We use ferments in the sense of doing vinegars. We're always trying to make vinegars out of our scraps. One of my favorites is just when you haul the tops of the strawberries, just throwing them in and getting them started as vinegar. They still take a lot of the really like lovely flavor and color from strawberries, but you're essentially just using something that would otherwise get thrown in the compost. So we make a lot of vinegars. We do kombuchas and we use kombucha for sorbet or as a starter for creme fraiche. That was actually something we picked up in the Noma fermentation book is you bring your kombucha with, we were doing like lavender and elderflower and then using that to start a from fresh culture. And also sourdough. We do a lot of sourdough starter. We use it for our laminated doughs and our donuts and sourdough bread, obviously, as well.
1: Kombucha techniques for, for sorbet. So uh, can you further develop?
0: We start with tea and, we, and sugar and we add our kombucha. It's called a scoby and that ferments the tea and it becomes really tart and fizzy and fermented essentially. And then you know you can add fruit purees to it, or just do a straight kombucha sorbet, and it just has a really nice, like, subtle tea, super tangy flavor.
1: And how are the uh, the consumers reacting to it? Because it's it's pretty um, surprising, probably in uh, you know in the ice cream world.
0: Yeah, I, it is, and I think I've been really surprised at how adventurous some of our diners are. I think that I almost sometimes feel like I'm like pushing my limits of how weird I can get with dessert to see if people. It. And they do, which is really great. Because I've worked in other restaurants where it's not the case, and you know, you did anything like beets or, and it just wouldn't sell. So I feel lucky that people who come to Bad Hunter tend to, to eat pretty adventurous. I think also things like kombucha is becoming really popular. I think these things that are actually quite ancient and old are sort of becoming revived. I think seeing things like that and, you know, you go to Whole Foods and you can see so much kombucha. And I think it's just exposure. People are getting more exposed to these flavors and becoming more used to it and open to trying it.
1: And would you say that there is a certain, uh, let's say, a platform in, in desserts uh, or pastries or ice cream that are more open for that type of exploration and pushing the boundary boundaries sorry, than others?
0: I guess for me, I don't know if this answers your question correctly, but I I find that I have to pair the weirdo ingredients with something that people really love and will always go for like chocolate. I can pretty much pair anything with beets and people will order it. So I usually just try to temper the more bizarre, like more different ingredients with things that are super recognizable and craveable for people. So it kind of gets them to try something maybe a little different than they're used to within while still staying in their comfort zone.
1: So the idea of having almost like an anchor flavor or techniques, and then you can play around and tweak it. Yes. Okay. Cool. So let, let's go back a little bit in in time, and I'm I'm curious because you know pastry, uh, and you know obviously from my accent, you can tell I'm French. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, there's yeah. we hear a lot about like the techniques, and uh, it's it's uh, it's a science. It's uh, there, there's really. Uh, specific recipes and rules and so on. So what was the first things that you learned about creating pastries that really surprised you?
0: I would say the first thing I learned that was surprising was just the patience involved. And especially coming from cooking, which is pretty quick and fast and on your toes. And usually something that, you know, if you mess up along the way, you can usually save it, you know, whether it's just a seasoning problem or something. And with pastry, you really have to be super careful at each step because each step really affects the final product. And these steps are also very time consuming and require a lot of attention. So just sort of the pace of it, that it's a lot slower. Um, it's taught me a lot about being a more patient person and just the, the importance of giving things the time it needs to be correct.
1: So you said that you started as a line cook. So what was the process or what happened You know, that make you switch into, uh, into dessert and pastry?
0: So I, before I went to culinary school, I was pretty uncertain about whether I wanted to do pastry or be a, a savory chef. So I just went to culinary school because I had a friend of a friend who said that it might help me be a little more well-rounded. So I did that. I actually studied in Paris. So your accent is very nostalgic for me. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh,
1: Which accent? So, Come on. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs>
0: So I went to school for for culinary not for pastry but I really still kind of was realizing that I preferred pastry. I had pastry once a week and it was my favorite class and I did the best in that. So then I'm I lived there for about a year and a half and I moved to Chicago and was just getting line cook jobs because that's what I studied and what I felt a little more comfortable with. And I kind of got I don't know what to say stuck on line cooking but you know at at a, at a few of the jobs i was working in i would express interest in switching to pastry and it was kind of like oh but you're great on the line if we move you to pastry we have to replace you on the line so luckily finally i was at the publican and that's where the pastry chef at the time was anna posey who now owns Elka, and she was the one that kind of helps me make my way over to pastry
1: so who inspired your generation you know of of chef or pastry chefs and there's always you know iconic names you know from decades after decades, you know, generation and generation. So I'm curious for you, who were those um, mentors and and people that you look up to when it comes to uh, dessert and pastries?
0: I guess I can't speak for my entire generation. But for me personally, I feel like my some of my direct inspirations in Chicago were Dana Cree, Amanda Rockman. And as far as like other legends, I really love the work of Nancy Silverton and Dory Greenspan. Working with Anna was great as well. I think that she has a really artistic approach on pastry that kind of helps me develop my own creativity. Those are some of mine.
1: Who did you work with when you were in uh, in France, in Paris?
0: My program for school was six months. And then I did six months of internship. It was a just a bistro called Lorsine. It was really small. It was just the chef and...
1: How important as the, the French techniques, you know, in pastry? We know that around the world, there's different, you know, influences. Obviously, there's Japanese school, you know, you have, you know, even Germany and so on. But we talk always about like the French technique, you know, in, in pastry. So do you think that every pastry chef should be able to master those? And then that's... Uh, you know, we hear about the fact that creative is great, but you need first to master the basics and like the techniques. And then after that, you can explore you know the creativity side. So I'm, I just wanted to hear a bit from you. What are your thoughts about?
0: I think I, I feel like I can see both sides. First of which being that I I do think that it's super important to learn technique before being able to flex your creative muscles a little bit. I think we're all super eager when we're just cooking to be trying a bunch of stuff out. But... You know, you might have this great idea, but you have no idea how to execute it. And it can end up being a poor final product because you didn't really know what you were doing. So I do think it's important to understand like basic science and pastry and basic technique, which of course, like most of it comes from French technique. But I also do think that sometimes it helps you to think outside of the box when you sort of maybe don't have that super traditional training. I mean, I personally didn't go to pastry school. I did have a very like baseline, super simple, basic pastry training, which was helpful. But I think it helped me sort of carry some of my savory cooking techniques that I learned while being a line cook into pastry that, that maybe I would have never come to that conclusion if I had just gone to pastry school. So I think it's both. I, I do really think technique is important. But as long as you allow yourself to like move outside of that box as well.
1: Do you think that uh, the technique helps when it comes to structuring a dessert? You know, we, we talk a lot about the, the influence sometimes for a certain chef, uh, chef, pastry chef about like the architecture influence and the structure of a dessert. Do you think that the, the learning the basics of the techniques really help, you know, in terms of uh, play with a different um, structural effect, you know, of a dessert?
0: I do. Yeah, I think it's super helpful, you know, to maybe start off by saying, you know, I really want this to be this texture. And then you could try and think of, you know, maybe recipe, other recipes you have that have that texture and, you know, being able to fall back on your technique.
1: So I would like to talk a little bit about um, the, uh, the your innovation approach or your approach to innovation. And um, I'm curious about... If you have a, a certain process uh, for creating a, a new, um, you know, dessert, and what's what's the creative process? What's the inspiration come from?
0: Yeah, so I usually start. My starting point is usually singular flavor or ingredient that I want to showcase, which often ends up being, you know, a fruit or a vegetable, something nature based, usually, or a flavor combination that I'm interested in trying out. So from there, I kind of go in a number of directions. I either think in terms of color. So I think of foods that are complementary colors or foods that are in the same color scheme that I think might flavor-wise be a good match for the initial ingredient. I also like the if it grows together, it goes together method, which is you know if they're coming up in the same season, they likely will be good together. And then I like to think about families. So for example, Quince is in the rose family. And I really like using rose and desserts in moderation. I think it's really lovely. And I kind of tied together in my brain that both Persian cuisine both uses, it uses quince and rose. So then that kind of leads me into a new direction of other flavors I can play with within Persian cuisine, for example, or like buckwheat and rhubarb are related. So kind of just trying to find, find ways to connect ingredients in my brain that make sense and have context. And then obviously trying it all together and making sure it tastes good. But I'd say that's the beginning of my process.
1: So there's a lot of uh, research, I guess, on your end.
0: Yeah, I'm a I'm a massive overthinker. So I, I put a lot of thought into everything I do, which is good. But I also kind of, I definitely tend to overthink things sometimes and make it harder on myself than it needs to be. <laughs> but it's just how my brain works. So <laughs> So I
1: was very impressed with, with this dessert, you know, the lime avocado mousse. Uh, you remember that you, know, you had on the menu with this, uh, the mango and there was a cilantro granita. That was absolutely fantastic. Plus it, it was beautiful in terms of color and fantastic for people like me taking pictures and putting them on Instagram. So
0: yes.
1: <laughs> And so can you describe a little bit the uh, what was the inspiration behind this um, dessert?
0: Yes. So I I can't take full credit for that one. That was a collaboration with one of my cooks. But I did kind of guide her into the direction that it got to. So she was sort of starting on... She wanted to do a lime dessert and she was working on sort of like a key lime pie sort of thing. So I was trying to help her do something that felt like her dessert, but also felt like it was a bad hunter dessert, which to me is always trying to push boundaries and trying to come up with creative flavor combinations not at the expense of flavor, of course, but just trying to trying to do something that's just a little different from it being a classic key lime pie, for example. So I suggested pairing the avocado with lime and cilantro. And she was a little hesitant. I think she was like, I'm worried it'll taste like guacamole. And I kind of just said like, well, guacamole is delicious. So I mean, what's wrong with that? Like pretty much anything can be translated in, into dessert and taste like a dessert, but still maybe be inspired by guacamole, and there's nothing wrong with that. So, sort of trying to like, kind of bring her out of her own box of like what makes sense for dessert, and just trying to pull inspiration for wherever possible. And, and it was her idea to add the the mango and the tahini spice on top. So, And
1: that was great, and that's true. That when when uh, we tasted it, no one said, "Oh, I don't think that anyone had guacamole on on uh, you know their minds." Because the, we especially with the in the mango aspect and then uh, there was a lot of contrast in texture that was fun. that was a really great dessert you're, you're mentioning that this is a work that you have done with one of your I mean, one of the cook so how important is the collaboration aspect of putting together a menu you know in in, in the restaurants so not I'm guessing that not all the dessert come from you or all the dishes come from the chef, but there is a lot of people uh, involved, which is is great.
0: Yeah, definitely. A collaboration is a huge thing for me personally and also just at, in Bad Hunter in general. You know, within my Insular team, I find it very important to get input from my cooks on desserts because, you know, I only have my own want my own brain and my own perspective and, you know, when I tap into their talents and their passions and, you know, I get to sort of see their cultures and their perspectives and you know, I have a cook right now from India, and she came up with this really amazing kulfi dessert that I just—I never would have come up with this on my own because that's not my background. You know, so I—I I think it's really helpful and keeps me inspired. And as far as between pastry and savory, we're definitely always kind of picking each other's brains and working with each other's menus. I'm always finding inspiration in ingredients that they're using or produce that they're using, and they often will pick certain techniques from my menu as well. One of our sous chefs went through a big pastry phase where he had a meringue on one dish at one time. And then I was kind of working with like a Japanese cheesecake recipe and he thought that was so cool. So he did an asparagus dish with like a Japanese cheesecake situation on it. So yeah, it's fun. We do collaborate a lot, which is helpful for all of us, I think.
1: You you had this uh, first background of being a cook. So I'm curious that First, if you are more inclined of collaborating with the chef you know, in the restaurant because of your background, and then second of all, you know, how much does it have an influence on the way how you approach your dessert today?
0: Yeah, I think it definitely maybe makes me feel a little more comfortable in working with the Savory team because I'm sort of knowing where they're coming from and the techniques that they're talking about. I feel like I just have a little, you know, I have knowledge in that with it being my background so it helps me to communicate with them I think easier about about dishes and then for me personally I feel like it's been a really huge inspiration on just like the the type of flavors that I gravitate towards and some of the cooking techniques I use you know yeah I think it I think it's had a huge impact on how I how I bake
1: so I'm super excited to have you um you know on the show because First of all, I didn't have a lot of pastry chef yet, so it's it's great. And second of all, there's not a lot of you know women <laughs> that I was able to have so far, and I really want to make sure that uh, you know I represent them on on the flavors unknown. I have uh, a series of questions for you because I am really amazed every time that I am in contact with you know this industry that uh, it's very much um, you know still unfortunately, I mean, it's changing, but male driven. So how do you think your career would have been different and not necessarily better or worse, but different if you had been a man?
0: It's such an interesting question. It is a little different in pastry because even though the industry in general is very male, pastry is pretty female dominated. So I feel like my career has been relatively, I don't want to say accelerated because that makes it sound like it's Too quick, but I, you know, I feel like I haven't been cooking for an incredibly long time and I feel great about my position now. So I don't feel like I lacked opportunity per se, but I feel like once you are in the position, it still feels a little different sometimes. Sometimes it's hard to get the same amount of respect from cooks that maybe the chef gets if he's male. Sometimes it feels like I have to be a little more persistent in bringing up ideas. Ideas aren't always taken quite as seriously. And I find that there's this interesting expectation of how women should behave in the kitchen. I feel like on one hand there's this sort of expectation that in order to make it, whatever that means, you have to sort of be, you know, have really tough skin and be more masculine and sort of be one of the guys. And then there's also sort of this expectation to like provide a lot of emotional labor and sort of be the per- like the mom of the kitchen. So it's kind of interesting between those two expectations, I guess. So You know, for me personally, learning that like I do prefer to be an empathetically a leader and, and co-worker and I like to, you know, I sort of have those sort of soft skills, but I'm also not necessarily anyone's therapist. So I've had to learn to, you know, kind of set some better boundaries and, you know, learning to be assertive and stick up for myself in a way that doesn't feel like I'm acting differently than I feel like my personality is. It's just a different way that we move within the industry, I think, that we have to think about a little more. Not that we should have to, or not that anyone needs to, but just observations, I guess.
1: No, no, that's great. And uh, what would be your advice for a young, I would say, woman that uh, is uh, inspiring of becoming a, a pastry chef?
0: I mean, of course, like working hard, wanting to go the extra mile, of course. Being nice, but still standing up for yourself. Or I shouldn't say nice, just, you know, being a good coworker, being a good team member, standing up for yourself, knowing that like all of our voices and perspectives are really unique and powerful. And, you know, we all deserve a seat at the table when it comes to coming up with dishes or coming up with ideas or just sort of having, trying to foster the confidence to like show up as your full self.
1: And for them that maybe sometimes they don't know what they are going into. <laughs> and uh, so can you describe a little bit what your typical day is, you know, the schedule of your day?
0: Luckily, we don't have to start that early in pastry jobs where I have to go in at, you know, 4.45 in the morning. But right now I wake up, I drink my coffee, I have a smoothie. I live in the same neighborhood as that I work in. So I walk to work usually around 8 a.m., so I'll check in with my team. Usually the first thing they do is they start taking inventory of everything we have. And from there, kind of starting on our prep list for the day. During that time, I'll be checking emails, checking private events for the week to make sure that we're on top of that. Usually at this point, I'll hop onto the prep list with my cooks. Otherwise, if it's a day where I'm working on R&D or trying to come up with a new menu, I'll, I'll be working on that. Usually, part of my day is devoted to writing recipes, having meetings, whether they're, we, you know, we have a weekly meeting to go over our PDRs, we have meetings about PR, stuff like that. And I usually work until about six or seven. I'll place orders for the next day, work on the prep list for the next day, make sure, you know, help clean up, make sure everything's all tidy before we head out. And then I go home and I cook dinner with my wife and I hang out with my cat. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, you, how do you. Let's say schedule throughout the weeks time for you to you know to really you talk about R and D. So the idea of uh, taking time to step back and and research and be creative and experiment. So how how do you organize your schedule? You know in order to accomplish that, plus you know the rest that you have to um, you know to focus on.
0: Yeah, I mean that's finding time to do R and D is probably one of my biggest struggles. It's super hard to find the time just in the day with how much of You know, just the daily stuff that needs to happen. So usually I'll just try and pick a day that's earlier in the week when we have a little less to do, or a day when we have when I have more cooks on staff to help out with the list. And just making sure that my staff is really trained up and knows what they're doing. And, you know, I'm available to ask questions always, but you know, they they have been trained so that they they can work pretty independently from me, which is really helpful when I do need to do R and D, but I I say I get time to do, do R and D maybe a few times a month. It's not very often, but I, I should. I would like to be doing it more, but it is. It's just hard to plug that time in when there's so many other things to do. You know.
1: So can you share with us a little bit of uh, what are like the the platforms um, you know of uh, interesting idea that you are researching uh, you know at the moment.
0: At the moment, you know, I'm not. I'm mostly working on bread right now because we're hoping to start a little bread program at Bad Hunter. I'm doing a lot of work with that. I'm also we're currently closed because of the fire we had, so I'm waiting to make sure what season we're going to open in so that I can direct my energy in the right season for R and D. So I'm I'm hoping it'll be spring. So we'll see.
1: I would like to know if you have any suggestions for. Um, someone at home that wants to organize a party and entertain guests, what would be your suggestion in terms of desserts that you know we can prepare?
0: Yeah, for dinner parties, I really think simpler is better, especially at the end of a meal. People have had so much to eat for yourself and also for the guests. But I really love panna cotta's. I think it's the perfect like little dessert at the end of a meal with maybe some fruit or some nuts on top. I also really like doing... For like a casual dinner party, like a really simple chocolate cake, maybe with, with some like olive oil and flaky sea salt, maybe some creme fraiche. And in the summer, I really just like to poach fruit in a simple syrup that I have flavored. So say it's August, I'll poach peaches and plums and nectarines and like a lavender syrup and just serve the fruit as is in the syrup. It's a really delicious end to a meal and it's not too heavy and people love it.
1: Any suggestion for me to integrate a vegetable?
0: Absolutely. I think a really good place to start with incorporating vegetables is cakes because, you know, you think of carrot cake, most people have had carrot cake before. So you can sub the carrots for any other root vegetable. You can do parsnips or sunchokes or rutabaga, whatever sounds good to you, you can sub in. And that's a nice way to sort of dip your toe into starting to cook with vegetables for pastry.
1: Very cool. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to try that. Definitely. <laughs> Thank you very yeah. much. So I, we have been um, you know talking for a bit more than uh, half an hour here so I am really um, pleased that you were able to you know to give me uh, your time here for the for the show and I ha- I want to finish with a series of rapid fire questions if it's okay with you. Yes, it's okay. <laughs> so where do you go for dinner or for a drink when you are off the clock?
0: Lula Cafe.
1: Lula Cafe, yes. That's great. For both drinks drinks as well?
0: Yeah. Both. Yeah.
1: Okay. What is um your late night craving?
0: Oh my gosh. Fried chicken. Fried chicken? Huh.
1: Yes. <laughs> like a standard fried chicken or with a twist?
0: Uh, I like Korean fried chicken with like okay. kimchi. I had it last night, so it's on my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: now I'm thinking about what's your favorite dessert, but listen, from a packaged food company or fast food chain.
0: Oh my gosh. I really like the frozen custard from Shake Shack. Does that count?
1: Yeah. Cool. If there is there any dessert that you will not eat?
0: Oh, I don't think there's anything I wouldn't eat. I'm not a huge chocolate fan, to be honest, but I, I will eat it.
1: Okay. I join you there. I, I I don't like chocolate in dessert. <laughs> I, I like chocolate tablets, but not, not in dessert. Yeah, That's funny.
0: Yeah. I'm rarely surprised by a chocolate dessert.
1: And the last one is, can you give me two of your uh, favorite cookbook when it comes to uh, dessert pastries?
0: Yes, I like Chez Panisse Desserts and I like Elements of Desserts by Francisco Magoya.
1: Emily, thank you very much. I'm very um, pleased to uh, have you, um, you know, on the show. It was um, a fantastic discussion. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks so much for having me. I had a great time.
1: Thank you for listening today. No worries if you were not able to write down some information that our guest was talking about, because you can find all of those in the episode show note on flavorsunknown.com. And if you are enjoying the show, please leave a review or a rating as it helps other people to find it as well. If you have friends that are foodies, please send this podcast their way, as I am always happy to have more people listening. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people.
0: Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review. Find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. And if you want to join the Flavors Unknown
1: community, search Flavors Unknown on Instagram and Twitter.